Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Today, I'm joined by a great friend, James Turner. James and I met when we were doing, initially when we were doing some work with Barclays, and then have carried on a relationship in terms of working with each other through his work with Prudential. But today, you're going to hear from James Turner, who is head of risk and compliance for Prudential, and takes a global role for that. But you're going to hear the story and the tales of how he got there, his background, a lot around how certain people have influenced his career. So you'll get a chance to listen into that, but also just how he's developed as a leader. And I've seen that um, over my time of working with him. So it's interesting insight into the man and his career. So enjoy. Good morning, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by James Turner. James and I go back, way back, over many bits of work for different organizations, but also many a dinner, sharing and putting the world to rights, um, sharing our issues, sharing our leadership stories. And uh, I thought it would be ideal to get James on today to tell us a bit about his leadership background and his stories. James, welcome. Colin, thank you. Really delighted to have this opportunity to share. Good. James, for those who don't know you, and I'm sure there's a whole lot of people listening who do know you and are just waiting to hear the stories coming out of your mouth. But for those who don't know you, tell us a bit about you you and what you do. Yeah. Okay. So I'm happily married to a, a wife that I was fortunate enough to meet when I was 16 at school. Three children, 25 through to 16. So all the challenges of COVID. Really, I, I started out a, a very uh, loving family in Nottingham, but a very small view of the world. And that real first culture shock was when my family moved to Trinidad. And I went from a local comprehensive into a into a boarding school, in fact, where, where I met my wife. And I would say, when I thought about preparing to speak to you today, it's a series of shocks and, and how I've reacted to them uh, that have really had a, an impact on my career and, and my life. Amazing. Trinidad, I did not know. What I love about doing this is I find out so many things I didn't know about the people I, who I, in theory, I know. So what's your role now, James? Where are you working? What do you do? If so, if you had to do that elevator pitch about what you are and what you do, what would, what would you say? Well, I work for a company that's very purpose-led in terms of helping people to get the most out of life. I work for Prudential. We're an insurer. Anyone in the UK will have heard of the kind of the man from the Prue. Well, really, the man from the Prue today is a, a very well-educated lady who is finding health and wealth solutions for our customers across Asia and Africa. And my role in the firm is as the chief risk and compliance officer. Amazing. And always I, I say this because, you know, I, we've spent a lot of time in the internal order at the risk and compliance world. But for those who don't know what risk and compliance is, what is it? What's the role, James? So really, and it's to help people make decisions with confidence. So in terms of risk, it's understanding the risks that we, are, we want to take versus those that we don't. So it's not about removing risks because you learn very early in business, you have to take risks to make, to make money and to be able to deliver to your employees, to your customers, to your shareholders, and, and even to our regulators. So the, it's not about having zero risk. It's being having a very proactive and thoughtful approach to the risks that you take. 
In terms of compliance, it's really about understanding not just what the rules and regulations are that you need to comply with, but what outcomes you're seeking for customers and what's the best way of delivering on those outcomes. Lovely. Good. So that's the technical bit over. I want to go back to Trinidad. (laughs) That blew me away. So let's go back to the the Trinidad. Maybe just outline your story to being a leader and how that started and how, how you develop yourself as a leader. Let's go with it. So, I mean, look, back to Trinidad, I was, I was very young. I was about I know, 13, 14, something like that. The, the real piece there was if you go from a, a, a very normal life in a small uh, town in, in Nottinghamshire, not really having a full view of the world, let's just say that it was a relatively insular view of the world, to, you know, going on airplanes. That was the first time I went on an airplane. Uh, that's when I found out that my real name is Stuart. Uh, and not James, because I uh, I got a, a passport, and, and, and that was when I discovered that although I'd been called James Turner my whole life, that my my legal name was Stuart. Then going into boarding school was was a culture shock, but from that, uh, you know, it was also a great opportunity. I met some great people, I made some really good lifelong friends, and that propelled me into going to university. But you look back now and realise just how many decisions were made based on your heart, maybe not based on your mind. And in terms of a leadership journey, it didn't really start until I until I started work. And I did a few different jobs. I qualified as a chartered accountant. But then I was very fortunate to work in Barclays for a great leader called Mark Carawan, mm-hmm. who really probably rubbed off some of those early corners and but really shaped a lot of my views on leadership and actually when I think about the leadership journey mm. it's shaped by people like Mark so I was then fortunate to work for Tijan Thiam in Peru for Nick McAndrew for Mike Wells I've worked for a, a whole series of really great leaders but also it's the things that they teach you and, and the mistakes and the errors that you make along the way mm. that, that really shape who you are as a leader. And it changes so much during that, that period as your roles and responsibilities expand. And you described it to me before when we were speaking about a series of shocks uh, in your life and how that's transmitted through. And, and you know, Mark Arwan, great leader. I, I, bizarrely, we worked with you for 10 years, but I only ever met him twice. Once as he walked on the uh, British Airways flight on the way back from South Africa. Another one when we first commissioned the, the audit academies in there. But that was a sort of, he had a major influence on everything I thought about and worked on from there. So tell me a bit about Mark, but also tell me a bit about the shocks as well. Yeah. So, so Mark was defined by, you know, absolute clarity of purpose before purpose was kind of the go-to for every corporate. His idea about speaking truth to power, being really clear on commitments to customers and how the role of the firm was there to deliver on it in a sustainable way, really shaped a whole group of auditors. And I went in, you know, I was in internal audit for more than a decade. That wasn't my intention at the beginning, but a lot of it was because of mm-hmm. some of the things that he taught me and the skills and the cur- the importance of courage, the importance of being humble when you've got it wrong. But at that point, you know, one of the shocks working in Barclays and, and in banking was, was the, the speed of change. And there was a real JFDI culture. 
And I really embraced that, both positively and, and negatively. And it certainly worked for a long time in my career, but ultimately it stopped working. Mm. And I think one of the things that I learned and a real shock was when things that had really helped me be successful started being a hindrance. Mm, interesting. And that would be an example of that because I suddenly realized once you reach this level of seniority that delivery was no longer as important as being able to grow emotionally and being able to engage with more authenticity, but being, yeah. you know, being able to recognize that, that stuff goes wrong. And the problem about a JFDI culture is it stops people from necessarily recognizing it and, and speaking up. Mm-hmm. Just fricking do it for those who are wondering what a JFDI culture, that's the polite version. I think that's the Irish flipping, version. Flipping do it. Yeah. <laughs> Just flipping do it. But it, I, I think it's interesting because those are the are sort of heady days in Barclays as well. So it, it was a difficult role to play third line defense, caution, assurance for the business, dotted line, you know, responsibilities. But that care and respect for the, the customer um, was core to that, particularly in the JFDI culture as well. Yeah. Well, you'll recall that that Barclays brought in a, a great leader from the US, a, a lady called Diana Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. and she was also a you know really, really interesting. One of the, I remember meeting her for for the first time really clearly. You know, it's, it's like those scars on your back. Yeah. She said, "Look, James, you're my head of internal audit." And she was running the UK retail bank. She said, I've got the following problems. She said, I'm a great believer that when people join, they're full of energy. And it's always interesting to see what they can do in their first week. So here's my list of problems that I've got right now. How can you help me solve them in the first week? And then let's meet on Friday and catch up and see how you did. See how you sorted it out. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I don't think I slept for a lot of that week. Yeah. But she was also a, a very a compassionate leader, a very inclusive leader, mm. and very different from Mark. And so one of the things I loved about Barclays is, is it wasn't just one type of person. It was a real variety. And so you were able to learn from a whole series of great leaders. Mm. And I found that really helped me when I went from Barclays to Prue. Mm-hmm. Because that was the first time that I was the head of internal audit when I went into Peru. And that was, that was when we worked together again because I realized all the things that I didn't know. And I knew that I had to start again in terms of, in terms of working with Potential Squared to, to build a team. Mm. I, and a truly global team. And, and I knew that we had issues. But I think taking some of those learnings from Barclays really helped. And it's interesting because the character's in there. And I just remember sitting around with you, uh, around that table with Mark, and I think it was 14 people around that leadership table. I can't remember. Maybe including us sat there. And I look around and I look how successful they've all been yeah, in many different ways and, and gone off in different directions. But it was sometimes it was a bun fight in a good way because there were so many egos, so many different styles of working. It was it was great to watch from the outside. And then when you got in, it was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, if you think, as you say, you you know, people like Paul Day, who's just taken a position at Standard Chartered, or Mary McNiff, who is, you know, super successful at City. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- that was a very privileged group to be part of. That is a real testament to, to Mark's leadership, because yeah. he hired that whole team, mm. uh, inspired them, motivated them, retained them for a long time. 
I do remember looking back at one point after I left thinking, wow, I was part of something very special. Yeah, I know. And I know you're cycling with Aaron Brewer tomorrow, who is part of that team as well, So, and has gone a different direction. I'm interested in one thing from that Barclays days, in terms of the edges rubbed off, because we've had a number of conversations where people go down one path, and for those listening, maybe an internal audit is the only way I go, whereas you've had a, a varied career, and we talked about you know, how you've, you've wanted to stretch, go into different areas. What did you learn in Barclays that's helped you do that? When I left Barclays, I was still focused on the, the internal audit role. Mm. That, I learned more of that when I was at Prue. Mm. And Prue, the culture was completely different. And that was another shock. I talked about shock, but it was a real shock going from Barclays to Prue. Because in, in Barclays, it felt like it was a decision every second. Value at risk. Everything was measured by the dollar, by the moment. In Prue, some of the decisions you were taking were for 30 years. Mm. There was very much more a focus at the right at the beginning about what, what is a customer outcome. I mean, it was just completely different. It was completely different. And at first, I found it very difficult. But one of the leadership things that I learned is that you were guided. Mm. So... The gentleman I was working for, you know, spent a lot of time kind of guiding me through the organization. I hired a, a lady from Barclays uh, about 10 years later, Hesty Reinheit, and she described it to me as Pru-Q. So like IQ, EQ. Yeah. So it's like Pru-Q. You've got to learn Pru-Q. And I hadn't realized it, but, you know, almost a decade earlier, uh, this guy, Nick McAndrew, had kind of taught me this. And, and he was the one who said, look, we're not hiring you for the head of internal audit. Yes, you can clearly do that with your Barclays background, but it's more the runway, the idea that you can do other things. We talk to teenagers, our children, our, our friends, and they come out and say, well, you know, why, what job, to, I don't know what job I want to do or what job I want to do next. And clearly I got through that initial concern, but I, I, I felt a bit like that child again in mm-hmm. terms of, I don't know what job I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And in the end, you know, a bit of luck, a bit of being the right person, the right place at the right time, uh, an opportunity arose to go into the finance team. And I jumped at it, not knowing if I would like it. And I remember uh, I'd done something similar in Barclays just before I left. I'd done a couple of years in compliance. Mm. And the truth is I hadn't enjoyed it. No. So I didn't, right. I didn't like that experience. So I'd gone back into audit afterwards. But this time... I jumped into the finance role and I'd agreed with uh, the CEO. I said to him, look, if it doesn't work, let's just agree. You tell me I'm terrible at it and I'll leave. Yeah. Uh, and if I really hate it, you know, let, let me out yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> nice. And that freedom to try something was great. That, mm. I, and whilst it was a shock my first year end and my first half year, I, I was blessed by a great team. I've been blessed by many great teams, but that was a great team of individuals uh, who probably nursed me through it, the first one. It was pretty brutal. And and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And from there, the jump into risk was far easier because you, you got a much better understanding of what drove the numbers, what products were driving the profitability, what actions were driving the strength of the capital for the company, and therefore the, the jump into risk made more sense but along that journey you kept getting feedback so whether it was with professional service firms whether it was with leadership coaches and 
one of the things about the PRU is, is, is that they encourage, you know, very robust feedback. Mm. That's probably the best way I can describe Slap with a wet fish. <laughs> that was another shock. That's really helped me mm. because even, you know, most recently during COVID, we've had to work really hard to keep the teams together, to keep mm. them motivated. And actually, prior to Barclays, I worked at, a, at UBS for many years. And a lady who was in UBS came and worked for me and, and helped me as a chief of staff, and uh, Vicky. And she got me to do things that were completely outside my comfort zone. So podcasts for the team on all the mistakes you've made in the last six months, not things that you're proud of in the past that you, you dress a mistake up as a real a success and something but things that are just cringeworthy you know embarrassing yeah embarrassing mistakes just to both to humanize but also to to really show that it's okay yeah and i love that because if i just being an author would be more wrong you know there's there's a principle in there that why not firstly but if I look at your opportunity to take that role and to take the journey into finance, you weren't it though, but you weren't it from the mistakes and the edges that you'd knocked off yourself or been knocked off in the past. And and what did you learn about yourself by the time? Because you were a different leader at Peru than you were in Barclays. I, I felt that when I walked in there. Well, it, it was really that initial feedback. So obviously I'd gone through an assessment center and I was quite shocked by the feedback I got after I got the job. So one of the things they told me is you never spoke about legacy. So when you went through this, it was it was more about what I'd achieved, what I wanted to achieve, what the team had achieved. But it wasn't about what you left behind. It wasn't about the sustainability of the team. And, you know, when it's really bang on feedback yeah. and it, it hits you and you think, oh my goodness, that is so true. That really hit me. And and that was one of a number. I, I was always curious, but realizing how much I didn't know made me much more curious in terms of learning and listening to what is really going on both outside as well as inside the organization and, mm. and, and what that meant to me and how I was leading. Mm. I think in Barclays, I'd learned to be courageous, hmm. but perhaps not vulnerable. Interesting. And so one of the things that made a big difference was just kind of giving in to that vulnerability. Hmm. You, it changes you from having a strong personality, an easy way of to, to actually asking more questions rather than stating opinions, listening harder, being more open-minded, classic leadership traits. But that was the difference between being a leader in Barclays and being a leader in the Pro. Pro Q, love that, I love that. Um, so I want to come back in because you were you were talking about, and I interrupted you, sorry, just when you were going in, you are talking about your, your learning in the Pro, yeah, um, and you'd moved into this role. In terms of the finance role, and then the move into the risk role, and then into to where you are now. What's in your head about what you want and what your version of leadership is? So moving into the finance role, it was about learning for me. I felt that I would learn more from the team and from the experience than I could teach. That, that's what I thought going in, because 
I hadn't done a mainstream finance role. Mm. You know, everyone talks about the imposter syndrome. I mean, I remember someone on my team said, you know, they knew someone was coming in and I'd overheard a conversation. They said, look, you know, you're never going to guess who's got the job because the person's never done anything like this before. (laughs) Honestly, my imposter syndrome just kind of went off the scale. So I went into it thinking it would be more about my learning. It really was as well. But what I also found was that it was very siloed. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the things that I was able to bring and what was really important in in, in the finance piece was bringing everybody together in service of in in service of of not just delivering numbers, but delivering insight. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they had to work together. And it was hugely competitive amongst amongst these various silos. Mm. And I would ask people which team they work for. And it was like a trap, right? Because they say, oh, I work for this team. And, I, and what I was trying to get to them is that they work for the pro uh, or something like that. Or, you know, they work for our customers or something like, you know, who do you work for? But, and, and it would be, it was really, you know, in 30 seconds, I could always, t- I could kind of test where we were along that journey. Yeah. And particularly in a finance role, because finance, you know, we've done a lot of finance business partnering work and the ability to think as a business person in finance as well is important. It's not just the data, it's the insights, it's the statements you give on top of it. I'm interested in just going back to that um, that podcast or the sharing all your screw-ups and everything else, and this is not to embarrass you, but you did mention before we came on air that you've got a few stories that people have reminded you about. If, if you had to look back and think, right, two or three things that were mistakes or wrong but actually shaped you, what, what do you think are the two or three things during that time that have shaped you? So one was my approach to hiring. And I didn't just make this mistake once. I made it a couple of times before I, I learned it. It had different flavors for, for the wrong reasons. I hired for, because I really respected the role the person had. So a partner in a big four firm or I really respected the company. So I hired a really senior guy out of a well-known international investment bank or I hired someone because they really impressed me, even though other people that interviewed them said, no, 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 this is a, a terrible fit. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I, I knew best. And and so when when I did this internally, I named names. I, I just don't think that's fair. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm not expecting that. Unless you can, and then no. <laughs> but each of those errors caused problems both in the organization and problem. It wasn't, it wasn't right for the person. It wasn't right for the organization. And actually it was avoidable. Mm. So my approach to hiring is completely different mm. as a result. I, 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 the kind of the recognition, I just had to go through different versions of that, that mistake. Now I look for leadership. I look for followership mm. more than who, where they've worked, what background, you know, I'm just, I'm always not interested in that anymore. Interesting. I'm interested in what they've done. Mm. How do they lead? I always ask about the scars on your back. It's mm. a typical interview question. You know, what are the scars on your back? Tell me about things when things have gone really badly wrong. What did you learn from them? Mm. Because I always think that people fall into two categories. Those that are prepared to admit the things that have gone horribly wrong uh, in an interview and what they've learned from it, and those that are not yeah. or have been so lucky that nothing's ever gone wrong. 
Yeah. And if you've been that lucky... I don't believe you. <laughs> and I don't want it to change on my watch because you yeah. don't know how you're going to react when it does. Yeah. Or perhaps you haven't got the self-awareness to recognise the mistakes you've made. So that would be one kind of chunk of errors that I've made. If we can dwell on that for a second, because I, I love that. And in my mind, I'm with you because I've got imposter syndrome and always look at, oh, he's worked or she's worked for this big company and they've got this degree and they went to this university. And the more you glamorize all of those things, you forget about the human that's in front of you. And what we're doing this year is something called the 500, which is looking at how do you increase equity and in career choices uh, for individuals in society. And there is this big thing for people, a number of people listening will be saying, yeah, it that's fueling a system of privilege, yeah, by doing that. And I, I think it's really good that you picked it up. But it's very difficult to fall out of that because you, as a leader, you've got the, the risk of making a mistake and saying, well, you rejected this person who had this credibility and background. You've taken a risk on this other person. What's your thinking when you're in that mode? Well, I mean, it's a beauty of being a risk director and a you know senior leader in the organization is ultimately I'm responsible for everyone we hire in the teams w- worldwide. And actually, I, I just genuinely don't care about it anymore. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the ex-smoker thing. I, I really am only interested in what what someone has achieved, what they I think they can achieve, mm-hmm. that what motivates them, what are their values, what are their ethics, what's their experience that's brought them to where they are today. And what are they hoping to achieve? Who are they as leaders? You know, how do they lead? How do they lead when things are going badly? Interesting. It's dead easy when things are going well. Mm-hmm. But when we're really tested, when things are going really badly, that's what I'm interested in. So actually, it's easier now because whether it's through blind CVs or you know, there are so many tools that one, one can use. Mm-hmm. But the whole approach to hiring has completely changed, yeah. I think. I think it's, it's just radically shifted. Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't shift, you will not get the talent. No. I mean, here's the, here's the rub, is actually I think the power is with the candidate. Mm-hmm. And I would say to those listening is you are the ones with the power to choose who you want to work for. Mm-hmm. And it's my job and my colleagues' jobs to sell the organization is a place where you want to work because if you don't, you can go and work a million other places or you can set up your own business and be hugely successful. I think the, the old school approach is dead. It's good to hear because a, a lot of organizations are are almost in some ways putting, you know, shuffling the, the deck chairs in the Titanic at the moment, just saying, well, can we get more flexibility? Can we get more? I think they're missing a trick that actually it's much more about passion that, as you say, the the person coming for the job has the, the, the opportunity to shift and, and shape it. Um, and I think there's also a huge amount of talent that we miss. I mean, UCAS said 25, they only tap into 25% of the potential real talent that's out there at the moment. So we've got to do something about that. It's great. Love that. Thank you for that. So you said one thing that you screwed up. I'm not going to allow you away. Let's get a second thing you screwed up. Now, what, you were having lunch with somebody who was giving you a story. Is that part of the screw-ups, or do we come? Yeah, that wasn't. That was a very. I I I, uh, I had lunch with an old, old Barclays colleague, and I said, "Look, I'm, I'm going into this with Colin." She described me as uh, I said, "Look, you better tell me some things I've done wrong." And she said, "Well, James, you know, you can be very blunt." And she gave me a couple of examples of, you know, I walked into an office and commented about what 
someone was wearing at seven o'clock in the morning because we'd gone in early and things that you wouldn't dream of necessarily doing today. But no, the thing that she reminded me of was she said, you know, once once you're on your team, you're always on the team. Nice. And and actually it was it actually was very warming. Mm. Uh, that wasn't a, a mistake story. Mm. A state story, I'll give you a different one. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, it, it tends to be or it can be quite limited in terms of the categories of diversity and inclusion that we consider. And one of the areas that I've certainly struggled with was on, in terms of almost like mental diversity Mm -hmm. and people who are very introspective and uh, are not uh, kind of gregarious in, in, in their, in their nature, but more introverted. And there's a guy on my team at the the moment who is absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, Brilliant! One of the best people I've ever 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 worked with. I, I, I so I so respect him. But when I first met him, I didn't. And I remember having a, a conversation with him, and I I just did not get where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. It was as if we were speaking completely different languages. And I thought that I could just fix the problem. We he had an issue, and and I thought I could just fix the problem, and, and so. I thought the problem was money and roles. So I went out, I had a f- challenging conversation with HR. I got him a contract uh, with more money and, and a bigger title and something else. And I gave it to him proudly thinking, I've resolved your problem. Here's my gift to you. <laughs> yeah, here's my gift to you. And what he basically said to me is, A, you didn't listen. That's not my problem. Mm-hmm. B, I'm not going to sign this contract. I didn't ask for this contract. I don't want it and I don't want the conditions that go with it. Mm. And it really shocked me because I thought I had listened. I thought I'd done a good thing. Mm. And it was because I wasn't listening. Uh, this guy was an actuary, right? And, and I'm not saying all, all, all actuary. I deal with, you know, I work with thousands of actuaries now. Yeah, yeah. And, and there used to be a time where you could make jokes about actuaries. But actually, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of these people who are just fundamentally brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. And this guy is fundamentally brilliant. Fundamentally brilliant. But because I hadn't listened, I nearly lost him. Interesting. It was his resilience to not being heard that he gave me a second chance. Nice. And the second time, I listened properly. Yeah. But it was such a close call that it changed how I listened and changed how I deal with people that had that type of characteristic. I love that. I always remember sitting, I'd been w- training with a group and one guy who just wasn't, didn't look like he was interested at all all day and we got to dinner and I sat over dinner. I just realized he was an incredibly, incredibly deep thinker. And he was he was involved with SAP HANA, so putting the new version of HANA. And, uh, you know, and I sat there and just asked a few questions in the evening. And normally I wouldn't have, but I thought, God, God I had the best two hours I've had for a long while just on trying to get my head around what his head naturally got itself around. And by the end of it, I felt this big, very small, because my I realized that this person's brain was massively, uh, you know, so much better than mine in terms of thinking through these problems. But I also had a better understanding of some of the people that potentially in the neurodiverse area are in a different way, and they get rejected because of behavioral patterns by others, and which is totally wrong. And not to labor a point, but honestly... I can't describe how differently I consider this guy and his whole team and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just amazing. 
I want to come back to the story about being it. Once you're on the team, you're always on the team because there's still people who I talk to, you know, Mustafa in uh, ICE in New York who still talk. Everybody talks positively about the time that they had with you, and they'll make a couple of jokes about the James too. Ah, James, you know, but they're, they're, you know, there's there's always something behind that. Ah, James, uh, in there. But there is something about uh, it. Must be nice for you to hear that you've made an impression yeah. you've worked and you've not only you've helped them, but they've helped you in terms of growing. Yeah. There's a few things. So one fellowship, this idea of fellowship is really important to me. Uh, I, as I said, I, I've been blessed to work for some really great leaders who I've stayed in contact with and t- continue to take counsel and advice off. But also when, when you pick great teams or when you work with great teams, how, when they leave and how they leave and how how you help them to leave and the fun you have with them when they're still there is great. And I don't do Facebook and lots of social media, but when I was in LinkedIn, I, I happened to be in Singapore at the moment. I, I looked up my kind of contacts and I realized that there were a dozen people I knew here that I didn't know were, they weren't necessarily here six months ago. I reached out to them and, you know, Yes, you have to make some effort, but wow, what a diverse community after so many years, and you know some really great people uh, that that you can trust and that can introduce you to or make suggestions or, or honestly give you really hard feedback. You know, I saw that posting, and, and I, yeah. you know, is that what you meant? Or I mean, when we spoke just before we came on, you made a comment about something I'd written on Strava mm. because you know I, I, I've also got that kind of love of cycling right now. But this idea of staying in contact, mm-hmm. I don't go to work to make friends. Mm. But if people become friends when we're when we're at work, like any friends, you, I want to invest in those friendships. Mm. But what I found is that it's sometimes great to work with someone and then not work with them and they go and do their own thing and then work with them again 10 years later or 15 years later. And they may, or you may work for them 10 or 15 years later. And that's fantastic. It is. It's nice. I had that opportunity where I was able to, I was working for somebody who I highly respected and he came to work for me. And it was, it was a weird moment. It was a weird moment later on to do that. But I, I like that. I don't go to work to make friends, but, but the respect that people hold you in is, is so high that it's, it's nice. It's a bit like your words about Mark Carawan as well, because Mark was, was tough. I mean, you know, there was, there was standards delivered against, you know, emails early in the morning, you know, it was regular things that he did, which were, but actually, he set up a group of people to go off and have amazing careers on the back end of it. So, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot written about grit mm. right now. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did we learn that? Yeah. So if I go back to the, the lady you met in Trinidad, yeah, and she said she, that I should be interviewing her today, is that the same lady in Trinidad? No, 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 sorry, I, I misled you. Oh, okay. That was my wife, Fiona. I met her when I was at school. And when I said, look, one of the things they're going to ask me about is is mistakes I've made or challenges. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Fiona, I've been blessed to be married for 27 years. Yeah. So we've known each other a long time. Yeah. So she's seen all of my mistakes. Okay, I'll get her on the next podcast and then we'll see what she says. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it's fair to do that. No, Andy Slee had that as well. But it's, um, 
I want to end with just a couple of things because the next phase for you is always uh, important. And we've been talking about the next phase for a number of years as we met up. Hmm. What is the next phase for you? Ultimately, I want to run a business. That's what I've learned. The, the greater the proximity that I've been to being in the business and helping people make decisions and making decisions, the more I, I've enjoyed it. And I think that there are, there's still lots more I need to learn. Right, so I'm. I I don't feel in any way like the finished article. I still feel like the student in terms of things I need to learn, and there's there's some gaps that I need to fill before I would feel confident to to make that jump. But that's ultimately what I I'd like to do. I, I don't think that's necessarily my my next jump, but I think that's that's ultimately where I'd like to go. Amazing. So I want to go back to a comment you made about legacy earlier on, because we, we have an expression which we borrowed, which is, you know, we plant trees that we'll never sit under. Yeah. If you had, you know, some seeds that you were planting now that you want to plant for the future and you're looking at your kids and you're thinking about what could I do to set the, the world to be a better place in leadership and what you do, what would they be? I think it is courage and courageousness, I think, are two a number of values you could pick and, and, and an endless list of attributes that you would want to be, whether it's vulnerable, etc. But for me, it's courage, courageousness, curiosity. So I think if you're always looking at something new, if you're always open to new ideas, if you're prepared to recognize that something worked or didn't work but that's okay you can keep you can keep looking uh, and be uh, be curious i think that's great i think courage especially you know whether that's linked to grit it's linked to re- resilience it's linked to being brave but also vulnerable with that courage mm-hmm. because i think you've got to be really brave to be vulnerable it's hard, it's the hardest bit of courage actually it would be that curiosity and courage amazing james it's been a real pleasure to uh, to catch up to hear stuff that i never knew about before and to to relive some of the old times as well it's been great if you if people want to get in contact with you or learn more about you how could they do that my email is turner.james at me.com linkedin is the easiest way to get a hold of me if i'm honest Oh, nice. And enjoy the, the cycle around Singapore. Are you doing the, the whole route around Singapore tomorrow? Or are you doing a short? I, I don't know where he's going to take me tomorrow. I went on one of his earlier routes earlier in the week and made the mistake of navigating to the start of the course. So I think I, I, I cycled from my hotel to where Aaron lives and then back around the island. So instead of doing a, 100 kilometers, I ended up doing 140. It nearly killed me. You're a fitter man than me at the moment, sir. So it's lovely to speak to you and uh, I look forward to catching up soon. Thank you, James Turner. Thank you very much. Well, that was an amazing episode. Thank you, James, for joining us. Um, I was struck by a number of things going through that. I think one was the conversation about the change, the learning he's had about recruitment. Key thing in there in terms of not looking at the CV or the type of organization, but truly looking at the human behind there and what they're bringing in terms of behaviors and values uh, to what the work is and how they're going to work as a team. I think the second thing that uh, comes to me is about the legacy that James has about once you're in his team, you're always in his team. And that's that comment from one of his uh, previous people who worked with him 
to say that you're always in there. But he's developed his leadership style over the years to allow people to feel that and, and be part of that, which is, is great. So fascinating um, conversation. Thank you, James, for joining. And I'll look forward to, to welcoming you in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast soon.